0: Michael McMullen, welcome once again to the World Snooker Tour Podcast. Where my guest this week is, I think, the only professional snooker player who was born in the week of the Blackball World Final, back in 1985. And he's looking at me now, he's obviously never heard that before. It's David Grace. David, welcome along. Hi, nice
1: nice to be here. Thank you. So as I
0: say, you were born at a time when the game's popularity in Britain particularly was at an all-time peak. And you became one of that generation who got swept up in it and started playing. And had a very successful amateur career, didn't you?
1: Yeah, um, it was a slow burner. But I I think I sort of progressed through the levels of all all my local competitions and Leeds Junior Championships and that. And then um, my first big breakthrough was winning the English Amateur in 2005. you won it a couple of times. It's such a tough tournament to win. So to win it twice is quite an achievement. Yeah, it's it's. Possibly one of the best trophies you can win in in snooker, really, with the the amount of... Obviously, you'd rather win a ranking event, but in terms of the names that are on it, it, it's an unbelievable trophy. And it goes back like, well, it's over 100 years old now, the trophy.
0: Mm. And you look at some of the names on there, as you say, and all the history that's associated with it. What was the standard like in the English Amateur Championship when you were winning at those times?
1: Um... I, I always thought it was it, it was tough because you just you, you, the Yorkshire region always seemed to be as tough to get out of as any region in the country. There was always like massive entries, and there was always a lot of good players around the Yorkshire region. So if you could get through that, you you, you could get through. You know, you would whittle the numbers down quite a bit, really, and then you, you win through the north. And it was funny actually. This the first season I won it. Um, I. I wasn't on the challenge tour at the time, and I basically had two tournaments all season. There was the English Open and the English Amateur, and they were back-to-back weekends, so Mm. that was all I had to play in. And I got to the final of the English Open, lost to Andy Lee, the Northern Final, and then the week after, um, I won the uh, the Northern English Amateur, so that got me into the final, and then I played Andy Simmons-Rowe in the final.
0: There was a time when winning the English Amateur Championship got you straight onto the tour. Now, that wasn't the case at that time. You got on then by winning the European Amateur Championship. You beat Craig Steadman in the final and it went to a decider. Now, what's that like playing one frame to effectively decide a place on the Pro Tour?
1: It was funny. I, I, I felt a kind of weird calmness about just the, the way it had gone because I'd, I'd lost to Martin Gould the year before in the playoff final um, to, to get on the year before, and then I'd had a f- fun, funny few results where I'd, I'd lost in the, the last English tour event that would have got me a ticket, then I'd lost in the playoffs, so I, we, then went and, we then went to the European amateur, and that was literally the last, the last throw of the dice to get on that year, and we'd had this funny record, me and Craig, of playing in nearly all the amateur events, and it always seemed to go to a decider, so it was almost written in the stars that it was going to go up to a decider. And uh, I just somehow managed to just get over the line.
0: And what was that like then when you'd won your place on the tour and you were now a professional?
1: It was just one of the best feelings I think I've ever had in snooker because everything's just ahead of you. You know, you've you've, obviously it was a long time coming even to get to that stage. Like I say, I'd had near misses and um, yeah, you've just got everything to look forward to from that stage on. You obviously you don't know how tough it's going to be at that stage, but um, yeah, it's an exciting time.
0: Well, how tough did you find it then? Because you were only on tour for one season, but we have to say, as so many players have remarked on here, it was a very different scene back then and you had very few tournaments to make your impact and no two-year card in those
1: days either. Yeah, yeah, basically you had to get in the top 64 in your first season or I think eight, maybe eight stayed on the one-year list. So it was it was incredibly tough, and th- th- that's just what I didn't deal with very well. I just and I, I didn't I'd, I'd worked so hard for so many years to get on the tour, and then so like I say I won the European in June, July time, and then I think the World Championship qualifiers were in February, the first stage of them, and by the time I'd lost in that, I was off the tour. So I would basically had six, seven months on the tour, and mm. and and there was no Q school to go to in them days, so I knew I wasn't getting back on for another 18 months at, at the earliest, and that was a really tough, tough time.
0: Well, what does that do to you, David, when it's been your dream to become a professional snooker player, and then, as you say, you're only on, and you're off again? Do you start to question whether or not this is the life for you?
1: Um... I knew I always just wanted to carry on playing, but it's it's just that feeling of not getting anywhere, not not making progress. It, you know that, that's hard to deal with. But um, I had a couple of years of not doing a right lot, to be honest. Going back to the piOS I think I was just putting too much pressure on myself to do well to to try and get back on, and um, didn't really get anywhere near getting back on for a couple of years until the Q school came around.
0: So you got back on 2011, and then you made a huge impact on the UK Championship a few years later when you went on this dream run. It's probably the thing you're best known for still. You beat Jack Lazowski, you played great to beat Peter Ebden, and that took you into a quarter final against Martin Gould, where it looked as though the run was going to end, until you produced a remarkable turnaround.
1: Yeah, it... Yeah, it was just one of those games. I was sat in my chair. I mean, when Martin's on it, he's absolutely unbelievable. Mm. It was almost enjoyable to watch because <laughs> I was just getting absolutely pummeled. And, and he it, went 5-1 up, yeah. first to 6. He just um I think he just missed a couple to win um to win that frame to win 6-1 and I just I cleared up with a 50 and I just just to stay in the match. Like wobbled the black but it dropped and then I just went to the toilet and just thought, right? Just just stand up, just just make him make him win it and um just, just crazy things started to happen like i think 3am or 2 later he he potted the brown and he was you know he was clearing up and he went in off and just just things that started to make me think hang on a minute maybe maybe it's going to be my my day
0: was that the most satisfying win of your pro career given what it meant and the fact that you've been so far behind
1: yeah yeah i think i think it probably still is my best win just just considering the circumstances and uh, just just finding a way to dig out a result
0: and now suddenly you're in the semi-final of the UK Championship. Now for someone ranked 81 in the world, that's an amazing thing to do. And you play Liang Wenbo and it just seemed to go on and on forever. So is it something you look back on now with regret that you got bogged down? or Was that something you just couldn't avoid being drawn into?
1: Yeah, obviously it was just like you say, everything was new territory for me from the basically from the last 16 onwards. Um, so it was it was all new, and I think looking back, I'd, I made a few bad choices, and, I, and also I didn't, I just didn't know how to deal with all the attention I was getting. You know, mm-hmm. obviously my phone blowing up, and by the time I I'd, I'd won the quarterfinal, it was probably midnight, and then I, w- I was on again at one o'clock the next day. It's, it's not much of a turnaround as well, and obviously you just can't get to sleep or, or anything. So the, the, yeah, that that was all new to me, and it just it just never happened for me in the semis. It just mm-hmm. I just never never really turned up, and obviously there was there was a lot riding on it for him, and um, yeah, just yeah, it got almost embarrassing by the end. Uh, how, bad, how bad the standard was, but uh, what can you do? You have just got to stick in there, and if, if I'd have got the win, I wouldn't. You know, it wouldn't have mattered.
0: It was massive to both of you, obviously, a huge opportunity to get to a UK final. When you're in a situation like that, would it almost have been easier to play one of the very top players?
1: Yeah, possibly, and the, the pressure being off. I mean, I was, I was second favourite in every single round I played, so, so, so that that wasn't anything new, but being that sort of, I'm underdog, but got a chance sort of game, and... Um, yeah, just it just never happened for me in that game. But yeah, it, it was st- it's still an amazing week I I think I'll fondly. So I, I don't have any regrets.
0: And was it like that from the start? That as soon as you got home, the disappointment was gone, and you could reflect on just how much you'd achieved.
1: I think you, you, snooker always leaves you wanting a little bit more. And you know, I, I, if you remember the, the end of the last frame, I missed a pink to go five each, and mm. it, who knows what could have happened in the decider. But you know, you, you you were trying to pot it at the time, and you missed it. What what can you do about that? David Graves has been given a lifeline.
0: And it's a lifeline that he's taken. Awesome. Can you believe this? The biggest win of his career. Girlfriend virtually in tears at the moment, sitting, watching the game. Yeah! Very well played, David Graves. What a tremendous performance. Five one behind. Martin Gould virtually had frame ball. He won five on the trot to get his place in the semi-final. Congratulations, a standing ovation from this packed crowd. David Grace in the semi-final of the Betway UK Championship. Very well done. So no concerns that season about staying on or for a while after that, but it was only a couple of years later you did fall off again. And having been to those heights of a UK semi-final, that must have been very difficult to take that you were off the circuit again.
1: Yeah, well, again, obviously it was all new territory being in the top 64 and having to, you know, defend your place. Um, Maybe I I stopped chasing and started looking over my shoulder a bit too much, you know, uh, sort of felt like a target and everyone was, you know, trying to, take my 64 place away from me mm. and obviously the way the rankings work in when those points come off two years down the line you're going to drop like a stone and I, I didn't do enough over the two years to stay in the 64.
0: So when you were in that situation you've been around a good while by then and you've got back on the tour and now you've found it hasn't quite worked out in the long run the way you'd hoped. What's that like? Do you start to think well I'm getting on a bit now and maybe it's time to question whether or not I'm up to it?
1: Um, not really, to be honest, because I, I, I finished, say, 67, you know, m- missed out by two mm. or three places. And y- should you really, you know, I, I know it's not where it's, everyone wants to be at the end of the day, but should you really be questioning whether you're any good or not? If you're mm. si- finishing 67 in the world, unfortunately, the cutoff is 64 and I'll just... Getting the wrong side of the line that year, like I say, you, every, the the next game of snooker can always be different to the last one, and you, you, you it, everybody lives in hope that you, you know, you're going to get to where you want to be at the end of the day. Mm. So um, I just tried to stay positive that year and, and managed to get straight back on.
0: And you did that very effectively through the secondary circuit at that time. And you've got to be so consistent in those tournaments and get a lot of good results. So you must have played very well that season.
1: Yeah, it, it was um it was a three horse race really. There was myself, Brandon Sargent and Mitchell Mann mm. and there was only two places um on the tour, so we we sort of kept vying vying for these two places and swapping swapping positions and it ended up going down to the last event and I I'd win and then Mitchell Mann was winning and I'd win and then Mitchell Mann would win again and it just in, in the end I think he got beat and then I won my next game to rubber stamp it.
0: It often happens when someone's been off the tour and then they get back <coughs> on that not too long after that, they have a really good run in a tournament. And a couple of years after getting back on, you got to the semi-finals again at the Northern Ireland Open. So much drama on that run as well, wasn't there? I think at one stage you had three deciders in a row.
1: Yeah, it was just another one of those weeks where mad things are happening and people are missing balls to beat you, which I think you, you, unless you play unbelievably, you always need that bit of luck to, to get through a few rounds. And um, I remember being, I think I was 3-2 down one game 3 1 down the next game, and then 3 0 down the next, the game after that, yeah. and managed to nick them all. Yeah.
0: So, you got through to the semi finals and you played Judd Trump, beaten 6 2 in the end, but he was so honest at that time, and it was certainly the case that day.
1: Yeah, well, we were the evening semi final, so Ronnie had won in the afternoon, mm. so basically <laughs> the last three, last three was Ronnie, Judd, and myself, and obviously, like you say, Judd that season, he was just absolutely un- unbelie- unplayable, really, and uh, obviously he, he won it again that year, I think.
0: Yeah, well, we say it was the Northern Ireland Open, but it wasn't anywhere near Belfast. It was during the Milton Keynes era. How did you find all that? Different players adapted to it in different ways, and some really struggled with it. Were you just one of these guys who got on with it?
1: Yeah, I think it, it probably helped me, if anything, because it was more similar. It was probably more similar surroundings though, to what I'm used to, with less, no crowd mm. than than obviously what the top players are used to. And uh, maybe just I got I got off on a, a few like. Winning a, winning a few matches early early on and sort of you get a liking for the venue and the routine of it and just yeah it, it was whilst it was not a pleasant time my life kind of got a little bit simpler if anything because it was just going to the tournament um, I wasn't we didn't have I wasn't working in the club so I was just sort of practicing a few hours in the club and then going to the tournaments not having to worry about coming home you know to get back to work or anything mm-hmm. so yeah in a weird kind of way it was everything got simplified. Because you've always worked
0: in the Northern Snooker Centre, haven't you? Yeah. So what does that involve? Being behind the desk, looking after the tables, bit just, of everything?
1: Just looking after the tables. I've, do, I've done a couple of other bits here and there and help out on the Facebook group and stuff, but um, mm. just cleaning the tables, Monday to Friday usually.
0: And at that time, presumably, the club was shut. So were there just a few of you in there, the pros? Yeah. Were you all able to
1: go in? Yeah, we had, we had maybe four or five weeks where we couldn't do anything. And then they changed the rules to allow elite sports people into the club and was fortunate enough that um, Chris, the owner at the time, he, he allowed us to go in and practice for a few hours every day.
0: Let's talk about something that happened much more recently, another great moment in your career when you played Ronnie O'Sullivan in the Northern Ireland Open, which this time was in Belfast earlier this season. Now, you'd only played him once before. That was at the Welsh, and you just never really got a look in there at all. So that was 4-0. But on this occasion, 2-0 down, maybe people would have looked at it and thought it's going to be the same again. But you turned it round and ended up winning 4-3. So tell us about that and where that ranks among the great moments in your snooker life.
1: Yeah, I was actually watching it this morning for a bit of inspiration coming up (laughs) here. Um, But Yeah, believe it or not, I'd never won a frame in the waterfront hall. Until that ma- until mm-hmm. the third frame in that match, because I'd I'd always played in the back room, which was not great to be honest. Um, the previous years, I think I believe I'd lost four nil four nil, and then the year previous I qualified and lost four nil to Dave Gilbert in the main room. But sort of got a taste for it, and then yeah, two 0 down to Ronnie. Like you know, obviously I'm thinking he's <laughs> just I'm not going to win a frame in this venue ever. But um, yeah, I just I just I'd found a bit of something. Just m- made a couple of nice little. 50 odd breaks sort of just winging it to get back in the match and felt pretty good from there really and I missed a couple of chances to win it clean which would have been really satisfying if, I'd have, if I could have sort of run to the line but sure. ended up sort of just getting through the decider
0: Does it become difficult towards the end of a match like that not to think about who you're playing because people always say you got to play the balls and the table and not the opponent but against Ronnie O'Sullivan and particularly when you've not beaten them is that very difficult to do?
1: Yeah, I think he, he has the, he has an aura like no one else does really, um, and you know that everybody's going to be watching that game because everybody always tunes in when Ronnie's playing, and obviously quite a big crowd in. And yeah, yeah, you're right. I, I just tried to just get myself into the match and just worry about what I was doing, and then you know when I started to play half decent, I thought you know I've, I've got half a chance here.
0: Let's come to the quick quickfire round. Ideal way to spend a day off?
1: Going to watch Leeds, maybe.
0: Okay. Best holiday you've ever been on?
1: Um, I do like Vegas, but probably the best holiday was Cyprus because um, it was my brother-in-law's wedding and also sort of a joint honeymoon for myself and my wife. Favourite music? Oasis. Favourite movie? Probably an airplane. And the best you've ever played? The best single match... I, I played well once in Scotland against Alex um, Like I, You can look at my record, I don't make many centuries and I managed to make like a couple of tonnes and a 90 against him and just just one of them games where everything clicked and like I, I seen him waiting outside afterwards. I ended up giving him a lift back to his hotel. I felt that <laughs> like, sorry that I'd played that well. Yeah, playing like that will do the job any day.
0: Let's talk about something away from snooker that you're also very talented at, which is painting.
1: So is that something you've done all your life? Yeah, I did it um, up to A-levels standard at school. Yeah, I didn't touch it for quite a few years. And then I did a painting of my niece, um, my first niece, for my sister. And then um, I also did a, one of Neil Robertson for like a charity mm. uh, auction when he did an exhibition at our club. And um, people were like all over it. Like, they like, really, they really loved it. And it, it fetched a nice few quid for charity. And um, yeah, just got more and more people interested in, in it through there, really. And you've done a lot of paintings of players and sold those, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, just ma- a couple of different ones, but ma- mainly just snooker players. Um, for, I've done a few for Jimmy Robertson's club down down um Bexhill and um did a few for the, the for the Northern over mm. the years. Of all the skills that people have, David, the one I can never get my head
0: around is painting. I cannot fathom how someone can do something as amazing as that. So when you sit down to draw a portrait of a player or anyone, how long does that take you?
1: I, uh, the way I I do it is quite a mechanical process. So I will I draw a grid on a on a on a photo, and then I'll draw a grid on the canvas, you know, to sort of enlarge it for a, a square by square, basically. Mm. And um, I've I've tended to just stick to doing black and whites. I'd, I've the last, the last couple I did, I did one of Alex Higgins um, holding the baby um, during lockdown. Actually, it was when they they were showing the Crucible classics oh, yeah. when the World Championship was supposed to be on through COVID. And I, I, had it in my head that I always wanted to do the the famous picture of Alex with the baby in the cup and that. So that was that was a really nice one to do. And then I auctioned that off for charity as well. So that 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 raised a thousand pound.
0: It always looks like the most peaceful thing to do, and you can just escape into your own world. Is that what the experience is like?
1: Yeah, yeah. Hours I, I just fly by. Is you get you get in the zone, um, and it's just I think it helps with your concentration as well. Really. Um, just, just to just immerse yourself in something, and it is satisfying as it as it comes together. But equally, it can be really frustrating when you're not quite getting it right, and like particularly the Alex Higgins one, I, I, I had to paint over his face three or four times and just start, start his start his face completely again. So
0: it's been about 15 years now since you first turned pro, and you've made your impact on the game and had some very good moments. I always wonder, though, for guys who've been around your level in the game, there must be times when. Clearly, there are periods where you're doing well financially, but there'll be other times where it becomes a struggle. So how much of a factor is that in a professional snooker player's life?
1: Yeah, obviously, everybody's circumstances are different, aren't they? Um In the early years, when I wasn't earning any money from snooker, I just had the job at the club and I was still living with my mum and dad and they obviously supported me for years and years to just keep playing and a lot of people are not in that fortunate position to get through those years. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I do count myself lucky that I was able to get through that and then when I met my wife and uh, basically the UK Championship run, just obviously that kick-started everything, didn't it? And um, yeah, being, being able to earn have decent living ever since
0: and the club you're talking about is the northern which we referred to earlier just a fantastic setup there isn't it and so much good competition great facilities the place has such a great reputation how big a part of your story has it been
1: yeah it's it's been everything again from it's the first new club i ever set foot in you know i would played Mm. on a small table at home and then um We'd, we, my dad must have looked in the yellow pages or whatever it was mm-hmm. <laughs> at the time, and we we'd, we just went down to the northern and just like it's just it's just an amazing place. The, from from the minute you walk in and you see the we've got like a match arena we're seating around it, and then the tables going all around the top. It's just a really special place, and you just, you just get addicted to playing. And uh, yeah, that's where I've played my entire career.
0: So going there for the first time, you thought it was just another
1: snooker club. You had no idea of the history of the place. Yeah, no, and um, there was actually two clubs uh, that the, fam- the same family owned. And we used to actually prefer going to the other club. It was called the Excelsior because um, it was it was quieter, basically. And my dad, he wasn't the best player. So he mm-hmm. always wanted to pl- tuck t- 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 us away in a quiet corner somewhere <laughs> where we could uh, just have a quiet game.
0: Something else that has uh, happened in your career quite early on, you were involved in the World Games in Young, I think it's pronounced, back in 2009. Now, this is an Olympic-style event, but for sports recognised by the IOC, which aren't in the games
1: yet, and you won the silver medal. So what was it like to be part of something like that? It was incredible. It's one of the best decisions I ever made, and I paid out of my own pocket, and it it was probably over a £1,000 at the time.
0: There was no funding? funding, No funding whatsoever.
1: Um, I got in it as the European amateur champion from the the previous year, and I'd already played the the season on the tour, dropped off, and obviously I I thought, well, I'm not going to be... Spending my money on anything else for a while, so why not? Why not go to that? And um, yeah, like I say, it was absolutely brilliant. One of the best decisions I ever made to go that. Um, me and Stephen Craigie went with. Um, he was the European Junior Champion. I was the European Men's Champion. I think we went with Mike Dunn at the time. And there was a, there was a few pros from the from the tour played in it. Um, yeah, just just incredible to see all the different sports. You know, we, we had we we were looking around. We had like helpers that would you know take us on. T- tours around the city and free free metro pass so we could get on the underground and just go, go off exploring it was absolutely brilliant what sort of a place was it um probably i'd say very similar to the big chinese cities mm. that we're visiting now like you know shanghai and stuff um and but they built all the all the infrastructure and stuff they'd built especially for this world games so the, you know the metro trains were all brand new so there was a brand-new stadium where it was um, solar-powered. I think it was, like, one of the first ever to, to use in that technology. And we went watching, like, the Frisbee and the rugby at the stadium. Mm-hmm. And um, I, didn't see any, I didn't see all the sports, but they had, like, dragon boat racing and, you know, wow. th- things like that. I think the squash was in the same venue as the snooker as well, so I chatted to some of the squash players. The green doesn't matter. <laughs> Amazing. David Grace causes another big upset here
0: at the waterfront hall that is a big win for him one of the best of his career surely from 2-0 behind as well he's got the better of the seven times and reigning world champion ronnie o'sullivan are you someone david who ever stops to take stock of your career and if so what is your overall assessment of what you've done in the game
1: i, I, I want more you know i definitely want more yeah um but the but I think it's a different question whenever you ask. If you'd have asked me at the start of my career, I'd want to be winning tournaments regular and you know, be a mainstay top 16. But having had the tough, the lean, the lean years and knowing now how tough it is, I, I never thought I would make an impact like getting to the semis of the UK or even mm. qualifying for the Crucible seemed such a long way off. When, when you've had six, seven goes, it and got absolutely nowhere near to, to finally do something like that is a massive tick on you know on your bucket list really and it's about finding once you've done that you, you want to do it again and you want to find other things other things to tick off your list and You know, to just nudge your personal best up every every time and try and just go that one step further.
0: And I know this is a theme on the circuit the last few years. A lot of guys like you have said that they look at some of the players who have won tournaments in recent years, who have been knocking on the door and plugging away for a long time and it's finally happened for them. And really, you're every bit as good a player and as capable a player as most of these guys. So you must feel that that is something you've got to hope for, that you could have your day as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, the, The last couple of years I, I've been practicing in, in in a different way than, than I ever have because I'm basically I've never been one of these that will play amazing in the club and then get to the tournament and just not be able to reproduce I've, I've kind of played my level really I, I think for, for, for most of my career so now I'm trying to I'm trying to up those levels in the club so I can hopefully then take it onto the match table
0: and if you could do that if you could have your moments there in an arena at the end of a tournament holding up a trophy would that make it all worthwhile all the work you've put in over the years just to have that one moment
1: yeah it, yeah it, it would mean everything if you can just get that far and and you can only do things for the, for the first time once can't you and I, I've, I've I've had the experience of getting going deep in, you know, to, to at least the semi-finals. You know, maybe I'd have to take that step and get to a final before I was ready to win one, or maybe I'd just do it in one mad, mad splurge mm-hmm. and win one.
0: And maybe in a way, words like work and effort don't really apply in your case, because I think what really comes through, always talking to you, you really seem to have a massive love for the game and a never-ending well of enthusiasm for it.
1: Yeah, I've obviously, like everyone, I've, I've had times when I, you know I've not been absolutely in love with with practicing, but um, I've ne- I've never stopped loving the game. I've never not watched it I've never wanted to be a part of it.
0: It's something that I don't think is ever going to diminish. You could probably see yourself still being pro and maybe 15 years from now.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I would hope so. I mean, obviously, the, the other pro, another pro from our club, Peter Lines, yeah. is doing. You know, he's still on the tour in, into his 50s and like there's there's no there's no physical reason as long as you keep yourself relatively fit that you that that you can't you know stay on stay there for as long as you as long as you want really
0: and finally david the big question just how tall are you <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm not hundred percent sure because I did one in boots once like with a laser and it said i was six foot seven but i, d- I really six, don't seven, think yeah i could that. well believe it I, um i do bang my head on a lot of door frames i
0: noticed as you were walking in here you had to lean down a little bit or you maybe you didn't even notice but you did almost hit it
1: yeah and mm. uh,
0: i nearly got taken out by the
1: drone come at the shootout as well oh, of
0: course <laughs> i was thinking that was flying very low yeah. actually yeah does that actually make it hard in a way to play snooker being that tall do you need to have a longer queue than other players?
1: Are there any setbacks? Yeah, my queue is, is um 61 inch which I think is probably 4, four or 5 inch longer than a standard one. Um, it definitely is not a great um, on my back first thing mm. in the morning. It takes a while for me to sort of get loosened up. Um, you probably don't use the rest that much. Well, there is that <laughs> advantage. I, would, I do recall in a particular junior junior tournament years and years ago, one of the mothers complaining to my dad that uh, I I only won, basically, because I I could reach all the shots that her son couldn't. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we always still laugh about that one. Okay.
0: Well, listen, it's been great talking to you, and I know you're a very well-liked guy on the circuit, and everyone respects your ability, and hopefully we'll see more success from you in the years to come. Thanks for joining us on the World Snooker Tour podcast. Cheers, Michael. Next time, it's Switzerland's Alexander Erzenbacher on the downside of reaching the English Open semi-finals early in his career. I just approached shots and frames and matches in such a different way to what I have been doing uh, in the last six months previous to that. And then I I realised something's wrong, you know, I'm expecting too much. I was like, oh, this is going to happen automatically, I'm just there now. Because when I was in the practice room before the semis, I'm like, wow, I'm in the top three of a ranking event, there's no one around. I'm, I'm, I'm in the top three, you know, and I really struggled with the expectation after that. So that's coming up next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast. And don't forget our bonus content, The 147, rounding up the week's snooker headlines in 147 seconds, out every Tuesday and available to download at wst.tv. Until next time, thanks so much for listening and goodbye.